Hi, welcome back to another episode of Plugged Into. I'm your host, Kimmy Dixon, and I'm also the founder of HyperTribe, of which this is a production of. So this week, we'll be talking to Vicky Norman all about sustainability within the music industry. It's all about explaining music industry 3.0 and how artists should really be developing themselves as businesses. She's had a wealth of experience working through radio and labels, so I'm super excited to be talking to her. But before we get into that, just to highlight that over on hypertribe.io, we've kickstarted the new applications for our Pioneer program. That's our response for tackling diversity within the music industry. And applications will run until August 2020. In addition, If you'd like to carry on or start your journey with us as well, we also have a program that's going to be launching in July 2020. Head over to our website and click your journey to find out more details about that. All right, over to Vicky. Okay, well, welcome to the show, Vicky. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background as well? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to be here. My name is Vicki Nauman, and I've been working in digital music really since the beginning. When I tried Napster for the first time in 1999, I was working in radio and, you know, frequently hanging out at lots of record stores and digging through, you know, the, the import bins. And when I tried the first Napster, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, everything just changed. Everything just changed in entertainment and I want to figure it out. I've been working in and around this space for 20 years. I started at one of the first legally licensed services at Real Networks called MusicNet, and it was a joint venture with major labels at the time. And that was my first real eye-opening experience because when I had tried Napster, the illegal Napster, I thought, well, this is great. All we have to do is put a transaction engine on it and we're done. You know, like this is going to be great. And then I started working more with the labels and the industry. And I realized, oh, this is, this is going to take a really long time. I didn't think it would take 15 years, but that's largely how long it took for us to go from Napster to a sustainable music industry again. And so, but I just became really fascinated with all the different aspects of it. So, you know, I went to Real Networks and was in the product team building one of the first services Then I left there and went to a radio station that had gotten funding from Paul Allen and Vulcan Ventures. That was called KEXP in Seattle. And it's the small boutique tastemaking station. And I built out all of the all of the streaming, you know, and that was that was in the early days of the DMCA. So we, you know, we were figuring out how to report and how to log what we were playing. And um, you know, and sound exchange was just being set up. And then I did an MBA. So for two years, I was, I was doing that. And I was, um, it was an international program through the London School of Economics and NYU Stern. And I was also doing some consulting and some projects in China and Europe. And I was licensing music back to, you know, European and, and Chinese indie music back to iTunes and MSN. And then I got, when I finished my graduate program, I got a call from Sonos. And they were still a very young company, and I was really interested in how music and devices were interacting. And so I moved, I had been living in Seattle, and then I moved to Santa Barbara and sat inside the product group at Sonos as well and got to really understand 
kind of hardware software content and and also I think one of the biggest eye opening moments for me when I was when I was at Sonos was you know the language gaps between technology companies and music companies and that we would be you know me sitting inside Sonos which was very much a technical you know very much a technical company culture they were really really struggling and having a lot of conflicts with the music services and you know and it was and i discovered in in that role like wow okay they're just speaking different language and they you know they need an interpreter <laughs> because you'd think that there'd be a lot of really shared interests but the language and the objectives and the assumptions that both sides are making about the other partner are oftentimes um, they're oftentimes just far enough off the mark that you can't really communicate. And then after Sonos, I moved to LA and I started up and then ran Seven Digital's US business. And that's a music platform based out of London. It's very much Sisyphus because you, you know, the platform licenses music and creates an a, a series of APIs for third party to build applications, but you're trying to please tech companies, music labels, music publishers. And then for me, you know, being in a, you know, away from the mothership in London, you know, also trying to please them. And it was, it was tough. It's a really important business, but I feel like it was, uh, I feel like it was a, almost like a um, working in the sausage factory of music because I saw you know, metadata problems, ingestion problems, licensing problems. Um, I did more licensing than is probably advisable for any, you know, one human. And I saw all the friction in it. And I feel like now I've been running my own consulting business for the last seven years. And I love it. I'm absolutely having a great time. But I think back at all of these different experiences that I've had, and it's almost like everything you know, every industry kind of crashes into the music industry. You know, you don't speak the same language, things that are the most important rules are unwritten. Technologists want to just basically, you know, come in and, you know, put everything into a spreadsheet and close a deal. And it just doesn't work that way with music and music rights. And so, Right now, I, I feel like we're in such a great position in the industry. You know, it used to be that we would sit around at conferences and talk about, you know, well, whether or not anyone would ever pay for music again. And I never lost faith that people would pay for music because I felt like we just, you know, we just haven't quite created the right legal systems for them to be able to do it. You know, with you have to have a service that's legally licensed and then you have to have phones and devices that have the right operating systems and then networks that have the right bandwidth and all of these pieces had to be in place and it really took until it really took until you know I would say the window of 2012 to 2015 for all of these pieces to come together and now now it's going and even though we're in a pandemic I still feel really optimistic that's awesome and I'm really excited to obviously have you on here because Specifically because there was an article that you wrote about um, about four years ago around music and sustainability within the industry. And it was one of the first triggers for me that I personally got where I was like, 
this person is literally speaking my language. Okay. It was a lot of thoughts that I had kind of had about sustainability within the music industry and also moving into another era, like what is coming, what's what's happening, um, and can we kind of reflect on it from a bigger picture? Um, but I know in that article there were some key issues around data and artist development. Can you explain a little bit about those ones? Because I, I know they were so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, one of the one of the things for me that I have always felt that is is important is is sustainability because we have, you know, we have money that flows between labels and publishers and artists and writers, and there's money that transacts there. There's um, money that flows from consumers into streaming services, but we don't actually have a lot of these pieces that are all flowing together. So if you think about data and the fact that we've got metadata problems that prevent us from being able to pay everyone accurately and fully, this is one of the biggest albatrosses around the industry's collective necks that has never been, I, I don't think anyone ever contemplated that we would have to go from a, a world in which a lot of rights and information was, was literally on card catalogs into a world where we have terabytes of data that are sitting on, on spreadsheets being reported. And if you don't have all of the metadata correct, it's a machine readable world. Like you're never going to be able to pay micro pennies out accurately to thousands and thousands of artists. And this is just, you know, it, it takes every different step in the industry to be able to correct this problem. And we are making progress, but it is, um, it is just a big tangled web. <laughs> exactly. It is. And it's something that, you know, there's a, there's a phrase that you use as well the music industry 3.0 and I'm fascinated by that. So can you explain a little bit about what 3.0 really means? Well, I think, I think of the 3.0 for me is that's really representing the industry that I think we're moving into right now, which is very much artists at the center. I think that artists have a lot more power than they, than they often think that they do. And the industry is shifting. You know, we went from an industry in the 1.0 era that was really much more around, it was around CDs. It was a, you know, a big monolithic industry of radio promotion, CDs, labels, owning the entire distribution chain, huge profitability, but it was ripe for disruption and that's what Napster 1.0, that's the first, that's the first Napster that really disrupted all of that. And then we kind of went into this, what I would call the, the 2.0 era, which was a digital era. And we had, we had the same constructs around three minute songs and 12 song releases. And why were we doing that? We were doing that because that's radio likes to have three minute songs and CDs have a capacity of, you know, average of 12 songs. And so we, we kind of moved into this digital era, but a lot of the things that we were doing were still, were still very much wedded to the, to the physical 
distribution world. And now in this 3.0 world, I feel like we really don't have a lot of these these barriers anymore. We don't really need to have three minute songs. We don't need to have 12 song albums. We don't need albums unless the artist really wants to release them. And we also have a, a world in which artists have artists have so many choices of, of how they can build and own their own careers and drive their own destinies now. And I think that, that the tools and the distribution systems for individual creators to be able to release their music out into the world, everything is really set up to be very lean and be very open and be very transparent. It still takes a team usually to, you know, to manage fans and tours and performances and all of the things that that were in our world of the music sector. But we've got a situation now where artists really have everything that they need to maintain complete creative control. And I feel like that is a really exciting path forward in our industry. And we finally got all the systems in place. They're not perfect, but we've got systems in place to enable it. For sure. And I think that driving their artists driving their own destiny is a massive thing. It's something over here at Hypertribe we're really trying to look at, which is the artist entrepreneur. So someone who can really build a career from themselves being in power and treating themselves a bit more like a business than, you know, an artist who might be at the mercy of some people, you know, in, in the olden days the older days <laughs> um, where, you know, they can kind of make their own decisions and also, you know, be involved in different opportunities as well. But that that 1% of artists that so-called make it, and there's a definitely a massive disparity between that 1% and the rest of the industry. So is there a kind of shift that you're seeing around kind of patching up because I know that you've spoken a little bit about that middle class of artists yeah. and, and how that's kind of coming about. Yeah. I, I'm so glad you bring this up because I feel like, I feel like it's a really important nuance for people to understand is that when I talk about the health of the industry and, and that money is flowing and consumers are paying, there is a lot of money in music now. And if you are an artist at the very, very top, if you're Drake or you're Rihanna, um, you are at the top of the the pyramid. And, you know, there's not a problem at all in the 1% of artists getting the, the money that they're due. You know, they have a team of lawyers, they are the superstars, they're making a ton of money, and they're making a ton of money for the labels and publishers that manage their rights. And, you know, huge round of applause for that class of artists. We also have artists at the bottom of the pyramid that I would categorize as hobbyists. And these are artists that are on CD Baby and TuneCore. And they may be artists that have a, a small following. They may be artists that are just putting things out because they can, and they just want their friends and family to be able to hear their music. But that's this true democratized layer where, you know, hobbyists would have never really had a chance in the olden days. They would have needed a producer and a record label and somebody to get their music out. So I feel like the artists that are that are more of the hobbyists, 
you know, they're making maybe a little bit of money, but not a lot. And that's probably not the main motivation for them to be in there. But in this big middle layer, which is a mix of independent artists, independent labels, people who are extremely talented, but they may have a niche following. They're not a mainstream act. That middle class of artists, I don't feel the on-demand streaming services. It's not necessarily a good fit because the model with on-demand streaming is volume. And so if you get a certain volume of streams, then you make a lot of money. And if you don't get a volume of streams, then you know, you're really going to be struggling to be heard and to make a living. I think this is an unintended consequence. I don't think that I don't think that we really contemplated how hard hit a lot of these artists in the middle layer would be. But now we've got established models with streaming and there's a lot of discussion now on is there a flaw with these models? Could it be adjusted to make it more fair? What is more fair? And we really, I don't think we quite know how to address this problem. You know, in the for 15 years, everyone's been saying, well, they make it up in touring. They can make it up in touring. And everyone thought, well, touring will never be disrupted. That'll never go away. And now here we are in a pandemic. So I feel like, I feel like there's, a, there's a problem that we have in making sure that niche artists who are really important, even to a small number of people spread all over the world, or artists who are more indie in nature and may not, may not really care about being in that top 1%, the way that the royalties are calculated to reflect the interest in fans, it's not quite right for those artists. Yeah, for sure. And do you think there's any value in taking a look at the fan base? Because what I'm finding is that artists who are really looking into their fan base and they're really kind of analyzing and understanding their fan base, they are extracting a lot more value from a smaller amount of people than expanding a fan base and being able to kind of, it's, it's quality over quantity every single time to make themselves more sustainable, to really invest in those who are really investing in them. Yeah, I think that's a great point because increasingly, like, you know, I've looked at all sorts of different things of, you know, like different royalty calculations, you know, could we change royalty calculations? There's discussion around user-centric model where, you know, that the money that I'm paying my nine ninety nine goes only to the artists that I listen to. It doesn't go into a, a big pot of, of royalty calculations. I'm not actually really convinced. I've done some work on that. And I've done some work with Will Page, who used to be Spotify's chief economist. And we've studied that and we're not 100% convinced that it will make a difference. And I think it could actually hurt some artists. And so I feel like, you know, if you look at the different ways you can tackle the problem, there's the streaming services and the models. Okay. You know, maybe there's something to be done there. Maybe not. I would love someone to try the user centric. And I know Deezer is making an effort there, but I'm not a hundred percent convinced it's going to be across the board win for this little layer of artists. 
And then you think about, you know, cleaning up your systems and making sure that you are collecting all the money that you're due. Everyone should do that. And especially those artists in the middle, make sure they're getting all the money from the labels and publishers and PROs. And then you think, well, then there's, then there's fans. And how can you get the most value out of your fans? And I think that is the area where artists probably have the most control and they have the most room for creativity, whether that means, you know, working with a brand, if you like a particular speaker or clothing company, you know, trying to strike a partnership with a brand, if it is doing you know, some sort of shared funding for your tours or for your new releases and going into the studio or just finding creative ways to engage with fans that will result in, you know, better paying tours, better merch sales, all of those things, better VIP experiences, live streams, all of these things, that's all of those things are just between the fan and the artist. So mm-hmm. I feel like that is really the area where you probably can get more high value goods if you really cultivate your fans. And then if you also leverage that with, with other business opportunities. 100%. What would be your key advice for an artist that's just kind of coming into the music industry or is preparing themselves or trying to navigate the industry today as it is? Well, I think that, you know, I look at it in layers and the most important foundational layer is, you know, make great music, practice, collaborate, use new tools, hone your craft. I think that, you know, the, the fact that you can release a song, you know, doesn't necessarily mean it's ready, you know, find good ears and good partners and collaborators that can help you release the absolute best music that you can produce. So, you know, that's a baseline. And then when you do release your music digitally, I always advise people to retain their rights, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and you can, there's lots of different great administrative platforms you can put your music in CD Baby. You can put your, if you're a record label, you can put that in Fuga or Empire or Cobalt or AWOL or Song Trust. You know, these are all really, really great companies that have built systems that can handle the metadata, that can handle the volume of use. They're transparent, that share back with you exactly what your revenues in are and what your predicted royalties will be get your music for both the publishing. If you're writing it and your sound recording, get that housed in these really modern systems. There's a lot of things that around metadata and core identifiers that we need in music that I don't really feel like artists should need to know everything about ISRCs and ISWCs and IPIs and all these identifiers, but you should have a partner that does, that they're tasked to look out for that for you. And then I think you need to have a team. You know, there's a, there's a handful of really young artists that, that are like, no, I'm engaging with my fans myself. I'm doing it all. I think that's awesome if you can do it, but most people need someone who's going to help, you know, help them with fan engagement 
figuring out what you want to do to try to monetize your your music? Do you want to tour? Do you want to record and just put all of your music out online? But find a really good team. It's probably a manager, probably someone who can help you with publicity and promotions, and certainly your creative team. And approach it as as an entrepreneurial effort. Um, I I don't actually see that much difference between startups in the tech world and people who are in bands. It's you, you know you you have to have a vision. You have to know who is going to care about the product or the the music that you're putting out, and then you need a small team that's dedicated and who believes in your mission. And I see a lot of similarities between the tech creators and music creators. And I feel like that's kind of the mindset that you need to have in today's music world. 100%. Like, I'm so glad you said that because (laughs) that is something that I constantly preach. I almost feel like, I mean, I've been running through some of the startup books and just taking a look and seeing that these all need to be rewritten. And, you know, the phrase business or the, you know, the word business needs to be replaced by artist. Exactly. Um, exactly. It's honestly, it's, um, it's fascinating. Just even things like, you know, testing products and so on and, and the way you engage with, with user feedback. And, and, and I think it's, um, I'm just so glad you said that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, that's awesome. I think there's a lot to learn from that. And I think a lot of people will be interested to hear, you know, from yourself in particular, because I think you've seen everything evolve. Um, so thank you so much, Vicky, for coming on the show. And thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Plugged Into and a shout out to Vicky Norman for her time. As ever, let us know what you think and who you'd like to hear from. DM and follow us at hyper underscore tribe. And don't forget to subscribe to get a new episode of Plugged Into every Wednesday at 12pm. If you'd like to see more about how you can carry on your journey with us, then head over to www.hypertribe.io. But until next time, take care and stay safe.